23. As we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke, we'll be in verses 1 through 12. And um, before we get, get going in, uh, in earnest on our text today, I have to say that I'm going to plead the fifth. What does that mean to plead the fifth? To plead the fifth, it's, it's really one of the great protections that our country gives citizens of this uh, citizens. And that is, I do n- not, I cannot be compelled to testify against myself. What an awesome thought that is. I, am, I cannot be compelled to testify, to bring a charge against myself. That's a great, that's a great privilege. It's a great honor. I don't know if other countries or other um, societies or other cultures in times past have had that, that right, but that's something that we can certainly rejoice and celebrate in. I bring that up because as we're going through our our text today, we are going to see that um, the tiles, who's on trial? What we're going to see is that there are people who foolishly don't plead the fifth, but rather they testify. And the more they testify, the more they talk, and the more they act, the greater the charges they bring against themselves. This is a text that deals much with self-condemnation. The people who are accusing Christ are accusing him of something, but actually in what's, what we see is that they are actually bringing charges against themselves. They are stacking up guilt against themselves. So let me just kind of unpack that a little bit. Let me give you a little review. Let's review where, where we were last week, and that might help clarify uh, that little that little introduction. Last week we looked at, there was actually uh, two big themes that we looked at. The first one was that there were two courtrooms. Remember, Jesus is on, on trial. Um, the, he's on trial in front of Israel's leaders, and that was an earthly court. But we also viewed that there was a heavenly court, because what did Jesus say? They asked him, are you... Um, They asked him who he was, and he says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. And we talked about what that is. Jesus is saying that I am this messianic figure from Daniel chapter 7 and Psalm 110 and Psalm 2, that I am this messianic figure. And while you stand and judge me, I am the ultimate judge, and I will, you will stand before me, and I will condemn you before my Father. Jesus is saying, I'm the judge. So there are two courtrooms. One courtroom where, an earthly courtroom, where Israel's leaders are bringing charges against Christ. But there's another courtroom that Jesus refers to, and he says, and I'm the judge of that courtroom. So that's one of the primary things we saw in last week's message. But we saw another focus, and the focus was dealing with the innocence of Jesus. And this is important because Luke focuses in, in, this, in these trial scenarios, he focuses on the innocence of Jesus because that was important. It was important because people had difficulty understanding how can a condemned criminal be Messiah? How can a man who underwent the, the indignity and the 
guilt and the judgment of being crucified. Remember, not everybody was crucified. Crucifixion was a horrendous testimony of your guilt. It was reserved for the worst. How can a condemned criminal be the Messiah? Or perhaps maybe even more importantly, how can Jesus be the spotless Lamb of God as one who was crucified? Those things don't make sense. So Luke is focusing on how Jesus is innocent. In other words, Jesus is the spotless Lamb. And we're going to see him um, unpack this idea that Jesus is not guilty, but rather he is innocent. He is not a crucified criminal, but a substitute. That's kind of what we saw last week. And and we want to bring that up because these two themes are going to continue in our message today. They won't be overwhelming, but we need to make sure those, those themes continue to flow into our message today. So let me give you a quick preview of where I hope to go today. Where I hope to go today is that there are human judges. We're going to see Pilate and we're going to see Herod. Human judges who are actually testifying against themselves. They ought to be pleading the fifth. But instead, they are going to testify against themselves. They are going to condemn themselves by their actions and by their words. This is a sad day for them. In fact, what we are going to learn is that there is one innocent. There is one innocent and he's going to be condemned. But we need to understand, he is not condemned because Rome condemns him. He is condemned by the decree, the foreordained decree of God set forth from before the foundation of the world that Christ would die for the sins of man, for the sins of men. This was from the very beginning. There is one innocent. There is one pure. He will be condemned. But this is by the foreordained plan of God. So that's kind of where we've been, where we're going. Are you with me so far? Okay, well, we haven't gotten very far, so I hope so. Um, and so... Uh, here, here we go. Let's go ahead. Follow along with me as I read in uh, Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 10. Listen to God's inerrant word. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ the King. And Pilate asked him, Are you the King of the Jews? And he answered, You've said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying he stirs up the people, teaching them, teaching throughout all Judea, Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he had learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very hour, for before this they had been at enmity with one another. This is God's holy word. We begin with this trial before Pilate. Now he's brought to, he's already been um, brought before uh, the Jewish leaders and now he's being brought 
um, for Pilate. It's probably very early in the morning, around 6 a.m. Um, many people have put it that, but that's not unusual. Um, court cases um, that came before the Roman uh, Justices were usually brought very early. I think they said like from 6 to noon, um, the Roman governors would, uh, would adjudicate cases that were brought before them. So Pilate would have been up very early. It was also necessary that uh, the Jewish leaders brought um, Jesus before Pilate because remember, the guilty verdict had already been rendered in the Sanhedrin, but the Sanhedrin lacked power for capital punishment. And so... Um, all of you with a green sheet, do you remember what a Sanhedrin is? We talked about it last week. I know it was a long time ago. You may not remember. What's a, do you know what a Sanhedrin is? Do you remember? Yeah, okay, that's a really good. Yeah, so it's kind of the Jewish leadership, and they are, they're working at the court. And Jesus has already been presented before the Sanhedrin, and they have rendered a guilty verdict against him. All right? But here's the problem that they had. They want to kill him. But they have no authority to put him to death. Only Rome does. So they need to take him to Rome. And that's what they're doing. That's why they're going to Pilate. And so they accused him. Does anybody remember what they accused him of? They accused him of blasphemy. All right. So keep that in mind because when the charges come before Pilate, you won't see blasphemy anywhere. It should make us think, huh? I wonder what they're going to charge him with. So, there's a guilty verdict that has been rendered by the Jewish leaders, by the Sanhedrin. However, though they determine he's guilty, they don't have the power to put him on a cross. Only Rome has that. So, the Jewish, this whole company, arose and they bring him to Pilate. Pilate's a Roman leader, the Roman governor of that area. And they begin to accuse him and they bring charges against him. And, here are the th- and they bring th- three specific charges Um, to him. And the first one is that he misleads our nation. The first charge is that he is uh, misleading our nation. I don't know if we have that up there. In other words, Jesus' teaching could cause a riot or could cause a revolt. And that would disrupt um, the, the peace of Rome. Remember, Rome, one of the unique aspects of the Roman government at this time was that there was relative peace. And they prized that peace. And so some guy who is out there potentially causing an uprising or a riot was certainly a threat. And so you notice they don't say we've charged him with blasphemy. We charge him with misleading our nation. This, This is a concern to Pilate. Pilate doesn't care about Jewish laws, Jewish religious laws. He thinks Jewish religion is is silly to begin with. And the fact that you have some little dispute about your religion... Pilate has no concern with. So if they come with a charge of blasphemy to Pilate, he says, really? Go away. This, on the other hand, will at least get his attention. Okay. He might lead, this might lead to a riot. And my job, Pilate has really one big job. Keep the order. Oh, and collect taxes. We'll get to that. Two things. Keep, the, keep order. Maintain peace. And collect taxes. So what do you think is the second charge they bring against Jesus? He doesn't pay taxes. Alright? So, um, Jesus is a, he's a tax evader. He's a tax dodger. This um, has the idea of being 
disloyal to Caesar. Now, we, we know this. Uh, Pilate's now listening to this. Huh. Man, it doesn't pay taxes. That's a problem. First of all, this was utterly and completely um, untrue. You'll remember um, back in Luke chapter 20, they tried to trick Jesus, didn't they? Listen. <clears throat> Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? What do you think, Jesus? They think they got him, right? He says, show me a denarius. Give me a coin. Whose inscription is on it? They said, Caesar. He says, so render to Caesar the things that are due Caesar and to God the things that are due God's. In other words, taxes go to, to Caesar. Pay your taxes. And render to God the things that are due God. And so this was um, blatantly false. And I think... More likely than not, Pilate's not a stupid man. I assume Pilate sees through this. Really? You're bringing me a guy who doesn't pay taxes. Like you care about that. You would celebrate and venerate a guy who doesn't pay taxes. If there's a guy who doesn't, you hate the fact that you have to pay taxes to us. And if somebody didn't pay taxes, you would... Give him a party. You wouldn't come and bring him before the court. You do not care one bit about the Roman tax system and the fact that there's a tax cheat out there. I'm sure Pilate sees through this, but he's evading taxes. Again, no blasphemy. He doesn't pay taxes. And then they bring up perhaps the most serious charge, and that is, this is a guy who claims that he is Christ, a king. Now, there's a lot of nuance here, and I'm not going to go into all of the details, but this is perhaps the most serious threat. Is Jesus a threat of revolution? Is Jesus a threat of causing a revolution and trying to usurp Caesar or overthrow Rome in some way? Now, Pilate knows good and well that even if he thinks he's a king, he does not have the forces to overthrow the mighty Roman Empire. However, some small uprising within this area would cause Caesar to get upset with Pilate and cause Pilate to lose his job, which Pilate doesn't want to do. Um, so this is a serious threat. And this is then, you'll notice that this it is on this charge that Pilate responds. This is where his line of questioning goes. So, they say you're a king. Are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? And, and you should note this. Here, so here's kind of the inquiry and the response. I love this. Are you a king? This you, that pronoun there is emphatic. I love this. You? A king? Or perhaps, are you a king? You've got to think. Jesus is standing. He's been beaten up. He's in rags. There's no army. In fact, everybody's left him. So Pilate, who's used to power, who's used to authority, who's used to kingly pomp and circumstance, has this guy, you? You're a king? You're claiming to be king of the Jews? Pilate's probably thinking, I've mocked the Jews for being a an insignificant group of people. But if you're their king, they're really insignificant. So this idea, there's contempt behind this. You, you're a king. You have no entourage. You have no military. You have no regalia. You're just in a 
in rags. You've been beaten up and nobody's defended you. You're a king? Really? His goal is to find out, though, is Jesus a threat? And for this, I'm going to move over just briefly over to John 18, because John 18 gives us a little bit more of an expanded um, understanding of the inquiry that Pilate has with Jesus. And it becomes important for us to understand Pilate's verdict, because this is the inquiry. The inquiry is, are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? And even though you don't look like a king, what's, what's your position here? Are you going to be a problem for me? That's really what Pilate wants to know. Are you going to be a problem? I mean, if you're just a lunatic, it's like, well, you won't be the only one. But are you going to be a problem for me? So in, in, in John chapter 18, especially verses um, beginning with 30, um, we begin to see this, this interchange. And so um, they, in John chapter 18, the the Jewish leaders bring Jesus to, uh, um, to Pilate and he says, why did you bring him to me? And I love, their, <laughs> I love their answer. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. In other words, we're not telling you what he did. Just trust us. He must be an evil man. Otherwise, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Just love that response. Like, what did he do? Well, if he weren't evil, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Yeah, but what did he do? If he weren't evil, we wouldn't have brought him to you. What did he do? We're not telling you, but it's bad. Really bad. What did he do? So Pilate begins to interrogate him and says, They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, so now we know what they want to do. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, here's the interchange. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Here's the question. Here's the inquiry. Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be, not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So this is the interchange that's going on between Pilate and Jesus. Are you a king? He's ascertaining, Are you a threat? Do I need to be worried about you? And after this interchange where Jesus is, based, is, is saying, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, I would not be standing before you beaten and broken. I'd be standing before you with a military behind me ready to take you out. My kingdom is not of this world. I've come to testify of the truth. So Pilate's like, going, okay, he's a religious nut. He is not a concern to me. And this is why now... Back to Luke. All right. Pilate ascertains that and understands that Jesus isn't a threat. And so, and so what does he say? He says, I find no guilt in this man. That's really important. I declare him not guilty. Remember, Luke's touting the innocence of Jesus. And Pilate, a Roman governor, says he's not guilty. By the way, 
Pilate will declare not guilty three times. And Herod will declare him guilty, not guilty once. Four times Roman officials are going to declare not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Do you get what Luke's trying to tell us? What's Luke trying to tell us? Yeah, not guilty. He's blunt. Okay? So Pilate understands that Jesus is no threat. He declares Jesus not guilty. In other words, he is pure. He has, he has not sinned. He's done nothing wrong. So what do they do? They're even more urgent. He stirs up the people. I love that because in Mark chapter 15, verse 11, it says the priests stir up the people. They are projecting onto Jesus their sin and saying he's the guilty one. He's the one who does wrong. He's the one who stirs up the people when they're the ones who stir up the people. Stirring up the people was a crime before Herod. They're the ones who did it, but they're projecting it onto Jesus. And so Pilate says, not guilty. They yell loud. And so, just a quick summary of where we've been before we move along. Jesus is the innocent sufferer. Jesus is the innocent sufferer. The death of Jesus is not because he is a dangerous revolutionary, but rather he is the spotless Lamb of God who will be slain at Passover to atone for sins. In other words, he's not a criminal, he's a substitute. So answering the question, how can a crucified man be Messiah? It is because he's not a criminal, but the substitute who died in your place. He is presented not as a revolutionary, but the spotless lamb. He is the substitute. This becomes a very important defense of the gospel later on. Not only, um, well, Luke's writing to a man by the name of Theophilus who may be struggling with some of these issues, but this becomes a very, very significant issue even in the, to the second century where people were wondering, how can Jesus die on a cross and be Messiah? Because he died not as a criminal, he dies as a substitute. He dies as a spotless. He was the only one innocent in this whole mess. And so when he dies, he dies as a spotless Passover lamb who atones for sins. Um, who atones for sins. So that's his, his brief trial before Pilate. And now um, he goes and he is tried before Herod because um, Pilate's a, a politician. Ultimately, Pilate's a politician. And the, the Jewish leader said, um, he stirs up the people, even in Galilee. Oh, he's a Galilean, is he? Whew. Herod happens to be in town. That's Herod's jurisdiction. I'm going to send him over to Herod. Typical politician, right? He passes the buck. Not my responsibility. I'll let Herod deal with this one. All right? Um, so Pilate sends Jesus over to Herod. Now, we, let's remember a little bit about who, who Herod is. This is Herod Antipas. And... Um, His dad was the, the one who, uh, his dad was the evil Herod who killed all the children. Remember, that was that Herod. This is his son, and he's over the, the, the region of, of Galilee. Now remember, this is the Herod who liked to listen to John the Baptist, remember? Um, but then under peer pressure and threat of losing face, he had John the Baptist murdered. All right. 
not a nice man, but he, remember, he liked hearing what John the Baptist had to say, uh, but then under pressure, he had John killed because it's like, well, it's either him or I look bad, so I'd rather kill a person than look bad. So that's what he does. He's an evil man. And then, remember, he, he even wondered, I wonder if this Jesus, he'd never seen Jesus. Jesus holds Herod with utter contempt. All right. But when he hears about Jesus, and, and Jesus is asking, you know, who do people say that I am? Some people, Herod thought that Jesus might be John the Baptist raised from the dead. So Herod knows about Jesus. And so this is, and so Pilate transfers him over, passes the buck, let Herod take care of him. He's Galilean. That's his jurisdiction. He, Pilate thinks he's done with this. Um, and so now Herod gets him. And Herod, we're told, is glad to see Jesus. All right? And uh, it tells us why he was glad to see Jesus. Not because, oh, you're the Messiah of the world. I've got, I got some questions to ask you. No, I'm glad to see him because uh, maybe you can do some, some trick for me. I hear you're a miracle worker. Do some sign. Perform for me, Jesus. So it says that when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was Galilean, sent him to Herod. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was glad, for he had long desired to see him because he'd heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Oh good, Jesus is in my midst and maybe now you can do a trick for me. That's all I care about. Do something spectacular and then I can tell all my friends at dinner tonight, man, I had this Jesus character and, and you know, he turned my water to wine or, you know, he healed my servant or whatever. He walked on water. It was amazing. You should have been there. All I care about with Jesus is the fact that he does something spectacular before me. It's sad to think that some are interested in Jesus only for entertainment purposes. As long as he entertains me and gives me the things that I want, things that make me stand in awe of things, then that's, that's all he's good for. It, it reminded me of those who followed Jesus because he fed them. Remember, he gave them a lot of food and then they were all pretty excited about that. And he went across the lake and then they thought he was going to feed them again. And basically he refused to and they all left. What? You gave us dinner yesterday, no breakfast today? <laughs> what good are you? You no longer perform for us. You no longer entertain us. You're no longer spectacular. See ya. Love that passage where Jesus then turns to the disciples, will you leave also? And Peter, as many foolish things as Peter said, he also said some good things. Where are we going to go? Only you have the words of life. Whether you feed us or not, you have the words of life. Here's the issue. Herod is self-condemned. Herod is self-condemned. He had an opportunity to have an audience with the one whom John the Baptist spoke of. You know, he liked hearing about what John the Baptist had to say. What do you think John the Baptist told him? John the Baptist had one message. I'm not Messiah. That one's coming after me. Whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. He is the one. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Herod liked hearing it, and now that one's standing in his midst, and he's doing do a trick. I said, this is self-condemnation. An opportunity to have an audience 
with the Messiah. God in the flesh. And instead of saying, asking a serious question or wondering something about the person of Jesus, he says, entertain me. Dance for me. Jesus' response is revealing. Utter silence. I think this is, I think this, this is a couple of things. Number one, it demonstrates contempt. We know that Jesus had very low view of Herod. But it's contempt because Herod is used to having plaintiffs stand before him, groveling and bowing. Oh, have mercy on me. Oh, whatever I can do to, get, to, to convince you I'm innocent. And Jesus is innocent. Whatever I can do. And Jesus stands there. Again, this is judgment. God is standing before him and silent. What a horrible, horrible event. The heavens completely shut up. And he's right in front of you and not giving you anything. I can't think of a worse judgment other than eternity without Christ. But God utterly silent. You don't deserve even my muttering. Nothing. Demonstrates contempt for the fact that you've been judged. You've been judged so harshly that heaven will not even speak to you. Even though it's two feet away from you. But not everybody is silent. It says the chief priest and the scribe stood up and vehemently accused him. In other words, they yell louder. They don't have truth. They don't have any accusation by which to charge Jesus. They had to fabricate charges in their own court. They have nothing before Herod. So all they have is yell louder. Because when you do not have the truth, the only thing that can make up for it is volume. That's it. In void of the truth, volume will fill that vacuum. They don't have the truth. And so all they can do, just yell louder. And then Herod, in his last self-condemnatory act, mocks Jesus, heaping further judgment upon himself. He robes him in splendid clothing and sends him back to Pilate. Here you go, king. Go back in handcuffs or tied up in custody of your officials. I'll dress you up as a king. So Herod has condemned himself. Pilate has condemned himself. He's declared him not guilty. And yet Pilate is going to sign his death warrant. These are men who are standing before the judge of the universe and they ought to be pleading the fifth. They ought to be pleading for mercy. And instead, they are piling up guilt and unless they repented on the day of judgment, they will stand before this very one whom they mocked. And he will be silent no more. On the other hand, if they have repented, 
he is silent no more. And he has heard that you are forgiven of your sins. Even wicked men, this wicked, have opportunity to repent. And I would welcome, folks, I don't care where you've been. How have you sinned against the holy God? I want you to understand that the blood of Christ will, will cover your sins. If you will call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. The last thing that is stated is that um, Pilate and Herod become friends, and there's probably a whole lot to say there, how enemies of Christ often unite together. Even though they themselves may hate each other, they have a common en- enemy, and if Christ is a common enemy, enemy they can um, despise or they can despise Christ and unite with one another. But I'll conclude with this. Here's what we're seeing. We're seeing that Jesus, the Lamb of God, is without spot or blemish. We need to get that point. Jesus is without spot. He is without blemish. Even those who hate him find no fault. He is not guilty. Herod doesn't declare him guilty. Pilate doesn't declare him guilty. In other words, when he dies, he is going to die as the perfect spotless Lamb of God, the perfect substitute. That is where Luke is going. This isn't about trials. This is about demonstrating that Jesus is the spotless, innocent Lamb of God who died for your sins and for my sins. This is the plan of God. We see that in Isaiah 53, and I I won't go there right now, but we see this. Isaiah 53 lays this out. This is the foreordained plan of God. It was set forth by God in eternity past, revealed to us through various scriptures, but certainly very concisely through the prophet Isaiah. I think what Luke is saying here is that the real trial isn't the trial of Jesus, it's the trial of his accusers. And they testify against themselves and they pile up evidence towards their own condemnation. I find no guilt in this man, but I'm going to kill him anyways. And maybe one thought that I don't know if it's applicable to anybody in here. If it is, I pray that you would seriously consider it. If not, it would certainly be applicable to friends and family. People, all sorts of people have, quote, reasons for rejecting Jesus. Their reasons for rejecting Christ do not acquit them. In other words, well, I don't believe that he was really the Messiah. Well, that reason does not acquit you. It does not declare you innocent. Rather, it piles up guilt. You can hear the gospel and say, well, I don't believe it because there is no objective truth that this happened, which I would disagree with. But fine, that doesn't acquit you. All it does is pile up guilt. You are just condemning yourself. And so you can come up with a thousand different reasons why you would reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is, that you have sinned against a holy God and you will face eternal punishment away from the presence of that holy God to whom you are accountable. But Jesus died in your place, bore your sins, bore that punishment in himself, and therefore, now by believing in his sacrifice, you can be free of your guilt and have eternity with Christ and have God as your treasure. That you can have. You can say, I reject that. That's fine. You can reject it on whatever reason you want. Reject it all you want. But it doesn't acquit you. You are not innocent now. Your reason does not make you 
guiltless before the throne of grace. All you've done is heard the gospel, know the truth, reject it, and you've piled up guilt. That's what these men have done. This is a different courtroom. This is not about the trial. Well, this is not only about the trial of Jesus. This is about the trial of Herod and Pilate, and perhaps it's a, it's a, a message or a trial. Are you on trial? Have you condemned yourselves before God Almighty? If so, it's not too late. I would, call, I would plead with you to fall on your knees and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the God of heaven, Jesus Christ the righteous, the judge of the living and the dead, will have mercy upon you and will, you will go away from this place righteous and justified. And so, with that, I'm just going to ask, maybe we, we spend a fair amount of time in, in prayer, but this is a...